Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. It's been a little while since we've been in this text, so read along with me as we review this. The apostle says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Having studied the need for justification and the fact that justification is obtained by faith alone, in Christ alone, we consider now our certainty of justification in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Paul's answering the rhetorical question, how long will this justification last? Sure, I got it by grace through faith, but how long is it going to last? Is it something that can be lost? Does it hold up under the circumstances of life? If I sin, will I lose justification and face wrath? Paul will assert that even if I do sin, I retain my right standing before God and will not face his wrath, ever. Even if I sin, even if I disappoint God, even if the sin's a big one, even if I murder someone, that's the one everybody always asks, right? As soon as you say you believe in eternal security, don't they, haven't you ever heard that? Well, what if somebody murders someone? Are you saying they're still saved? Yes. A thousand times, yes. If they were saved, they remain saved. A thousand times, yes. You cannot lose your justification. It was obtained by grace through faith, and there is a certainty of it. And that's what Paul is speaking about in these first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5. So Paul is essentially answering the question, will justification survive this life? And he answers it in two ways. In verses 1 through 5, he answered it negatively. Even though I experienced tribulation, tribulation is designed to strengthen me. It's not designed to destroy me. It's designed to result in hope, not despair. Paul's saying that I remain justified before God in spite of my suffering. Now that seems like almost um, such an obvious, transparent thing. That why would we even bring it up? It's not so obvious and transparent to everyone. The more you get outside of our circles, you know, the circle of our own church or church friend or your own particular tradition, you'll see that these are some serious issues out there. And there are, well, there are many Christians. In fact, there's a whole segment of Christianity that believes if you're suffering, it's an indication you've lost your justification. Now, they wouldn't put it that way. They'd say you've lost your salvation. But use Pauline terminology here. You've lost your justification. Paul says no. Trials in this life are designed to strengthen us. Do we enjoy it? Heck no, we don't enjoy it. That's why they call it suffering. But suffering is not ever meant to destroy us. Suffering is not an indication that we've lost our salvation. Suffering is always meant to make us better, 
Now, it could be suffering in the form of discipline. It's designed to keep us from a, a particular sinful pattern. We're going down a very destructive road, and God has to, to spank us and tell us not to so that we'll turn around. In the same way that you would if, if your child had a habit of running out into the street after a ball, you know, when they're four or five years old playing ball in the front yard, they run out into the street. You may tell them once, don't you ever do that again. If they do it again, any good parent... Any parent that loves their child is going to do something in a disciplinary way for that child so that they never forget they're not supposed to run out to the street. Is it because they're trying to, you're trying to destroy that child? God forbid. You're not trying to destroy the child. You're trying to save the child, to rescue the child. So God may give us a form of suffering called discipline in order to make us turn from a pattern of behavior that is very destructive for us or the people around us. And then there's a kind of suffering he allows us to go through to strengthen our faith, to test it, to show that it's pure, not to break us down. God is not some sort of cosmic puppeteer that's up there trying to make life hard on us. He's a wonderful, loving, benevolent father that wants to make life wonderful for us, and he knows that in, in order for that to happen, we have to have our faith tested now and then. So that's what Paul says in the first five verses, that, the experience of tribulation and trials does not mean that I have lost my justification. Again, a moot point for many of us, but not necessarily for large segments of the Christian population. So if you're speaking to someone who has that problem, you need to take them to Romans chapter 5. You need to take them to James chapter 1. You need to take them to the book of Job. I mean, there's a whole book written about that, that a righteous man can undergo incredible sufferings. So in the first five verses, he answers negatively. This, in verses 6 through 11, which we're in the middle of right now, Paul answers the question positively. He says, we were justified when we were sinners. We were justified when we were God's enemies. Now that we're family, he will keep us justified. If we're justified when we're sinners, when we're his enemies, now that we're family, he will keep us justified. That's his argument in verses 6 through 11. In verses 1 and 2 again, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, he says, what he's doing in this first verse is, in light of what I've told you, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to the end of chapter 4, in light of all that, since, I've been, since you've been justified by faith, so what? Well, Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God. God is the reconciler. God always performs the action of that verb. But remember, we're the ones reconciled to him. He's never reconciled us. He's never, he's never done anything wrong for which uh, to be, to, that he would need to be reconciled to us. We're the ones that moved. We need to be reconciled to him. We have peace with God. Because of our uh, justification, we have an objective peace with God, instead of the alternative, which is to be at war with God. I feel so sorry for my non-Christian friends, because they have picked the worst possible adversary in all the universe. They have picked the one adversary that there is zero chance of ever defeating, and that's God himself. Now they may say, listen, I'm not at war with God. I mean, I'm, I live and let live. I, I mean, I believe in peace. I have nothing against God. Well, yes, you do. As far as God's concerned, you're his enemy, which makes our justification so much more wonderful to realize that he did this for us while we were his enemies, not his friends. 
So we have an objective peace with God instead of being at war with God. The, the Greek term irene means a set of favorable circumstances involving peace and tranquility. The condition that we found ourselves in before we were justified was not a real good one. And we've already learned many things in the book of Romans. In, in verse one, eight, chapter 1, verse 18, God has revealed his wrath against us before we were justified. Uh, we stored up wrath for the day of wrath. That's Romans 2, verse 5. God had given us up to self-destruction. Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28. We were worthy of the second death. That's Romans 1, 32. Watch this. We were inexcusable. People make excuses all the time. Before our justification, we were inexcusable. We were all under sin. That's Romans 3, 9, Romans 3, 28. And Romans 5.8, we were guilty in the eyes of the divine courtroom. Romans 3.19. These seven points make it clear that we were enemies of God. And Paul will come right out and say that in Romans 5.10. There existed a state of hostility. Not because God wanted it that way, but because man pursues his own rebellious way. Prior to the moment of justification, then, man was hostile toward God. Now, after justification, a truce is declared, so peace exists. God and believers are reconciled. We're no longer enemies. It's a great and wonderful comfort. Where there had been war, there is now a state of peace, regardless of the way that you may feel. That's another huge issue within Christianity. If I don't feel saved, I must not be saved. It doesn't matter how you feel. Once God has got you in his grip, and as soon as you exercise faith, by grace through faith, you are justified. You can't get out of his grip even if you're having a bad day. You can't get out of his grip. You're not out of his grip no matter how depressed you feel. Now watch. You may think that you're the only person in your circle or the only person in your church that ever gets depressed. Guess what? You're not. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, the people sitting before you, uh, behind you, to your right and your left, they've been depressed too, perhaps even in the last week. Christians get depressed, but it doesn't mean they've lost their eternal life. We are in his grip no matter how we feel. There are two sides to reconciliation. There's an objective side, and that is the potential which Christ accomplished for all mankind. That's when the, when the scriptures say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. When John says that, he, that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours alone, but for the sins of the entire world, it doesn't mean everyone's saved just because Christ paid the penalty for everyone's sins. Or as some ancient theologians prefer to say, Christ suffered for everyone's sins. But it makes everyone savable. And that's the objective side of reconciliation. There's also a subjective side by which we actually become reconciled to God. So when Paul says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, is that the objective side or the subjective side? That's the objective side. That's the potential for everyone. But there's a subjective side by which we actually take advantage of the offer. The whole world is reconciled in the sense of being made savable by Christ, but not in the sense of being saved. You must accept the free offer, and there's only one shot at it, and Professor Shockley will talk about that on one of these subsequent Wednesday nights. It's also very important to remember that, again, that God is not reconciled to us. We are reconciled to him. 
God does not move in relationship to the sinner. The sinner moves in relationship to him. Then in verse 3, Paul says, And not that alone, but we also exult in our tribulations. There is nothing inconsistent about the believer enjoying the reconciliation we have with God, the peace we have with God, while at the same time facing illness, persecution, and difficulties of all kinds. Tribulation is designed to strengthen me, not destroy me. It's designed to result in, result in hope, not despair. It doesn't cancel the reconciliation we have with God. We might ask, why do we exult in tribulations? Paul says in verse 3, the last half in verse 4, because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance proven character, proven character, hope. The reason why we can reasonably rejoice in troubles is because we know that tribulation brings about something that's ultimately good. It brings about endurance. Endurance brings about a tested character, sometimes called a proven character, and it ends in hope. We know that even though troubles come, we've not lost our justification, we've not lost our peace with God, and no matter what the situation brings, we have a future in heaven with God. Suffering, suffering rather than weakening our hope strengthens the certainty of our hope. In fact, the Greek word elpis, E-L-P-I-S, elpis, doesn't just mean hope in the, in the sense that normal English speakers use it, you know, uh, with, with some degree of uncertainty. You know, are the Texans going to win next week? Well, I hope so. Well, that's not the way. That's, maybe they will, maybe they won't, but it's my desire that they do. Well, not, not in our justification. We have a confident expectation, which is the real meaning of that Greek word. Translated hope into English. But understand in Greek that, uh, that carries with it a confident expectation of the future. Hope, this kind of hope, not the kind that maybe is and maybe isn't, but the kind of hope that Elpis represents doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which was given to us. So not only do we have an objective basis for our hope, which has already been mentioned as knowledge, and we'll have another objective basis as we go along tonight, but we also have a subjective basis for our confident expectation. And some people don't like subjective anything. But just because something is subjective, it doesn't necessarily make it wrong. We have an objective basis for our hope, and that's data, that's knowledge, that's divine revelation. But there is a subjective basis as well, and that is the fact that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by means or through the Holy Spirit. This phrase, the love of God, we talked about it about three weeks ago, so I'd like to refresh you before we get into tonight's lesson, because that lesson ties in with tonight. So if we, if we forgot that, you'll, for, you'll miss the beauty of this, the way Paul ties it all in together. But in, in I don't want to get into too, too many details, but you may have heard this understood. I know that you've heard this understood in a, in a variety of ways. Um, there is a way to understand this that would be... Uh, an objective genitive, which means our love for God. When we say the love of God has been poured out in our hearts, there's, there's one understanding of this passage that would say, God the Holy Spirit gives me love for God. Now, actually, that's true. God the Holy Spirit does do that. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. However, that's, that's probably not what's going on in this passage. It doesn't fit the flow of the argument. This is rather what's called a subjective genitive, meaning God's love. The love, of, the love that God has. The Holy Spirit takes 
the very love that God possesses, God's own love, and pours it out. Remember the demonstration we had a couple of weeks ago? There's no glass here, and, and I'd shock Paul if I did it, but when, when we just poured it out and kept pouring and pouring, and it just overflowed, that's the way the Holy Spirit pours out God's own love in our hearts, allowing us, watch, to feel loved. As long as we're walking in fellowship with Him. Now, if we're not walking in fellowship with God, then there is a great possibility at any one given time you may not feel that God loves you. But if you're walking in that close, intimate, that koinonia relationship we've talked about for so many years, if you're walking with that relationship with God, you're going to feel the fact that God loves you. And that's subjective. And I propose to you there's nothing wrong with that. God wants you to feel loved. There's an incredible comfort in feeling loved. And so we have an objective understanding of our faith. That's what Paul says in terms of knowledge. And we have a subjective knowledge of well as well. Douglas Moo, the New Testament scholar who's written an incredible commentary on the book of Romans, said this, speaking of this love of God which has been poured out in our hearts. He said, it is this internal subjective, yes, even emotional sensation within the believer that God does indeed love us. Love that is expressed and made vital in real and concrete actions on our behalf. That's what we'll study in just a minute. That real and concrete action that demonstrates this. That gives us the assurance that hope will not disappoint us. The reason we know that hope doesn't disappoint us, at least one reason, is that God the Holy Spirit has poured out God's love in our hearts. And we feel the love of God. There's nothing wrong. I know we're all, we all want to be objective, and that's good. But there's nothing wrong with subjectively feeling that God loves you. Just as long as you understand, if you ever wake up one day and don't feel that God loves you, don't, don't think that he doesn't. He still does. That's a, that may be a way to analyze your own spiritual life to see if I'm walking in fellowship with God or not. And if you're not, then take the appropriate steps to get back in fellowship with God. Now, we're, now we move on to... the in the time we have left tonight, in verses 6 through 8, which form a singular argument that demonstrates the abundant and absolute nature of God's love for us. We might summarize Paul's argument in this way, and this, is not this doesn't necessarily follow the order of the verses. This is more of a thematic summary. But in verse 7 we learn that human love, at its best, will motivate a person to give his or her life for a truly good person. At its best, that's what human love will do. Christ, the second point, Christ sent by the Father died not for righteous people or even for good people, but for rebellious and undeserving people. And that's actually verse 6. So you see we went to 7 first and then to 6. And finally in verse 8, the third point, God's love is far greater in its magnitude and dependability than even the greatest of human love. So that's the way that this section should be understood, under those three categories. First, human love at best will motivate, will motivate a person to give his or her life for a truly good person. Everybody agree with that? You, you should. Human love will motivate someone to give up his or her life for someone that's good, for a comrade, for a child, for a parent, for a friend, for a, for a fellow church member, on a broader scale, if you're in the military, for your nation. That's verse 7. The second point, Christ sent by God the Father died not for righteous people, 
or even for good people, but for rebellious and undeserving people. Do you already see, remember we, we did a comparison and contrast on this a few weeks ago when we had a, a special session. Do you see a contrast there? There's a contrast between what a good human being would do and what Christ did. Keep that in your mind as we go through this passage. Therefore, the conclusion is, if we would die for someone that's good, that Christ died for people who were bad, who has the better love? Who has the stronger love? Who has the more powerful love? And who has the most dependable love? It's not us. Because there are restrictions on who we would die for. Certainly, Christ would die for someone that's good if he could have found one. But guess what? He didn't. He, there was no one that was righteous. So our love's restricted. His love is unrestricted. So, therefore, God's love is far greater in its magnitude and dependability than even the greatest of human love. If you just get those three categories of principles, you've got these verses. You understand them, really, before we ever go through them, if you understand those three things. But we're not stopping there. Let's go through the verses. Look at verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This argument functions not only to provide evidence for the love of God by tracing the love that we experience in our hearts to its source, but also in doing so to substantiate the other utter dependability of our hope. If God would love us while we're his enemies, if he loved us while we were at war with him, why would he not love us now that we're his friends? If the love that Christ demonstrated when we were his enemies shows that his love is much more magnanimous, much more dependable than ours, why do we all of a sudden think, when we're having a bad day, that God has changed his eternal nature and somehow doesn't even love us now that we're his family? You see, again, you see what's happening. Human love at its best will, will die for someone that's a family member. God's love will die for anybody. Now that we're a family member, why do we think he's got less love than we would have had? That's part of Paul's argumentation. Verse 6 is a little bit complex in, in the original language, but it could be understood this way. For while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for godless people. Now, Before I go any further, we're going to get into some topics a little bit later in the book of Romans, sometime in the spring, that seem to cycle every now and then in church history as being very hot topics. You've, we've discussed them a little bit before. We'll discuss them as they come up in the passage. The whole Calvinism, Calvinism, Arminian discussion, election, predestination. Uh, on what basis are we elected? On what basis are we predestined? And there's um, there's a lot of information about that. But one thing that our church holds to is what we call the doctrine of unlimited atonement, meaning that Christ died to pay the penalty for all people's sins, but not all people will be saved as a result of that. Lewis Frey Chaper said that the death of Christ on the cross makes all men savable. It renders all men savable, but no one is saved until they appropriate the offer of salvation by grace through faith. That's the way that he put it. Our church believes in unlimited atonement. We would use passages like 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the entire world. And that's pretty clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And sometimes people have to try to twist things around and, and you say that that's the world of the elect. 
and I reject that categorically. And I, frankly, most uh, Calvinists uh, are a little shy about using that particular argument as well. But did you notice what Paul just said in, in our verse here? For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Did you catch that? Think theologically for just a moment. There are some folks that say Christ only died for the elect. Right? I mean, there, that's a, that would be a, a, a Calvinistic view. This verse says that Christ died for the ungodly. Now, are the elect the only ungodly? No. Not at all. This is the verse that also teaches the doctrine of unlimited atonement. Because you see, before they came to Christ, whether you're elect or not elect, you're ungodly. So to limit the atonement, or Christ's atoning work, to just the elect would mean the only ones who are ungodly are the elect. I see that that was fulfilling for some and was just really for others. Hang in there, we'll cover that again, but at least you've heard it once. At least, at least you've heard it once. <laughs> you've heard that before, haven't you? Okay, Will, you've heard that before, right? Okay, at least, at least, at least a, couple, uh, a couple were able to, to grasp that. Now, back to our verse, verse 6, uh, in terms of its analysis. There is one note about the Greek word order and the importance of it that I'd like to make. And that is that the term Christos, which is the word for Christ appears earlier in the Greek sentence than it does in the English sentence. Now, there's only one reason I want to bring that out, and that's because, well, actually, it can be translated this way, for Christ, while we were yet helpless at the right time, died for the ungodly. You see why translators didn't translate that way. It's a little stilted. But the reason I wanted you to know that that's the word order is because there's a certain amount of flexibility in Greek word order, especially when it's compared to English. But when a Greek writer wanted to stress a word or a concept, on occasion, not always, but on occasion they would move the word closer to the beginning of the sentence. Now, there are certainly there are exceptions to this, but I think that's what Paul's doing here. He wants to stress the contrast between Christ's actions and his love and a normal, everyday, decent person's love. That's why it's at the beginning of the sentence. So it could read this way, for Christ, as opposed to us, for Christ, while we were yet still helpless, at the right time died for the ungodly. Okay. Christ is the emphasis, but Paul wants to make sure that we understand where we stood before salvation. We were helpless and ungodly. I don't think there's a whole uh, tremendous difference between those two terms. I think they're actually fairly parallel in their meaning. We were helpless and ungodly. Now, sometimes, sometimes, if you remember, the concept of weakness in Paul's writings can have a positive tone, can't it? You remember 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So there are times when Paul speaks of weakness that it can be a positive thing, but not here. Here, it means the total incapacity to do good. Then, Paul says, at the perfect time in history, at the right time. Don't you wish we had the timing that, that God had? There's a lot of things that I've done that might have been right, but they were just a year or two off. If I could have just done them a year or two earlier, or waited a year or two later, said the right thing, but maybe said it at the wrong time. But God's timing's not that way. His timing is perfect. And at the perfect time, time in history, Christ came. 
there's a lot of discussion about the meaning of this passage, but I, I think it's, it is crystal clear. The more you study the history of civilization, particularly the history of the first century, you see how God brought Christ at the perfect time. The perfect time so that the Roman roads were built, so that the gospel could be spread. There was a system of government that, while oppressive, uh, became oppressive, oppressive very quickly, and actually was the form that crucified our Lord, still was present that allowed the spread of the gospel better than other forms would have been. There's no mis- there are no mistakes in God's timing. At the perfect time, Christ came. At the perfect time, he'll rescue you. At the perfect time, he'll answer the prayer that you've been praying for so long. If, if I may, and not, not to not to embarrass, but for years and years, perhaps 30-plus years, Rob Byer prayed for the salvation of his father every single day. Mr. Byer is now 103 years old. And Mr. Byer now has, after all those years of a faithful prayer from his son, now trusted Jesus Christ and received eternal life. God does things at the right time. Now, I wonder why he didn't answer that prayer 30-something years ago. Part of it has to do with Mr. Byer's own response. But God does things at the perfect time. Now, you've been praying for something, too. I know you have. I mean, we all have. And we've been praying for something that God, you've been praying for it for a year, and God hadn't seen fit to answer it yet. Now, you've got a, you have a dilemma. Do I quit praying for that, or do I continue understanding that God's timing is perfect. He'll answer it at exactly the right time for his glory. And you know what? For your benefit, too. Keep praying. Don't quit. Have confidence that God's omnibenevolent, meaning he loves. He's all-loving. He's omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. And he has perfect timing. At the perfect time, Christ came and died for helpless ungodly sinners. Point is, he didn't die for a righteous man. He didn't even die for a good man. Now we go into the next sentence, verse 7. Now there's a contrast. Again, verse 6 is speaking of Christ. Verse 7 is speaking of us. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man some would even dare to die. So the point of this verse is clear. Paul highlights the love of God manifested in the cross of Christ by reminding us that the pinnacle of human love is the giving of one's life for a person that we're close to, a spouse, a child, a friend, or a countryman, whereas God sent his son to die for people who hated him. i got to tell you, I don't know that I could do that, even on a really, really good day. I don't believe I could die for someone that hated me, and that I know hated me. But I'll take it one step past that. I've got two wonderful boys. They're, they're a huge part of my life. And I can guarantee you, I wouldn't send one of them to die for someone who hated me. Do you see what the Father did? Do you see what kind of love he has? How could we ever question that now that we're his children? Do you see Paul's point? There's a subjectivity in the love that we have because the Holy Spirit has poured out that love in our hearts. But there should be an objectivity too. By objectivity, I mean we should be able to rationally, quietly sit down and think this through. Wait a minute. He loved me when I was his enemy. 
sent his son to die for me when I was his enemy. Why would I think he doesn't love me now? Oh, poor me. Nobody loves me. You know what that really means? Even when you say that, even when we all think that sometimes, it means that the people you want to have love you right then don't love you. Okay. Somebody loves you. We just forget about the everybody else, but whoever it was that we really want to have love us at that moment, then we don't, they don't love us the way that we want to be loved. They don't treat us the way we want to be treated, so nobody loves me. Somebody loves you, no matter if everyone else deserts you. If your name shows up and the picture shows up on the front page of the paper tomorrow in some horrible, embarrassing situation, somebody loves you, and that's God himself. I often wondered how Lee Harvey Oswald's family felt after they heard the reports in Dallas that afternoon, what, 3, three o'clock, 4 o'clock, when his name started surfacing, that he had uh, at least participated in, in assassinating President Kennedy. I always wondered if, if, if they maintained their love or if they were, you know, as, as a parent, you'd just be so totally humiliated. Even at that moment, and I don't believe, I have no indication that Oswald was ever a, a believer, but even at that moment, God still loved him. And sent his son, had sent his son to die for him, and makes a consistent demonstration of that. So, in this verse, also I want to point out that even though some folks might think there's a contrast or some something different between the term righteous and good, for the, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. There's a, uh, there has been discussion about whether there's a difference in these two terms. Again, just like I believe in verse six. The helpless and the ungodly refer to essentially the same thing. Here, the righteous and the good refer to essentially the same thing. That The, the Greek word that's used there for good is the Greek word agathos. And ag- there's two different Greek words for good. One is kalos, and that means something that is, it could be translated good or, or beautiful. Uh, a tree could be kalos. A mountain could be kalos, but a mountain wouldn't be agathos. Agathos is, is something that is, is uh, intrinsically good, whereas kalos means something that's more beautiful than good. This is something that's intrinsically good. So I don't think that there's a hierarchy here. I don't think that there's uh, something that's more, that's, it's more special about a righteous man than a good man or more special about a good man than a righteous man. I think it's essentially referring to the same thing. We have it in us to give our lives for those that we feel worthy of the sacrifice. But Christ, again, gave his life for those who were his enemies. Now in verse 8, probably if, if I was to ask you before we started the book of Romans to write down two or three of the verses that you already knew, I bet this would have been one of them, wouldn't it? But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, you may have memorized it improperly. You may quote it improperly. I know I do sometimes, and I'll make that past tense. For God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But if you make a careful observation of the passage, you'll see that's present tense. He, he is demonstrating that right now. Someone might say, well, yeah, you say God loves me. Maybe they're from Missouri, and they say, show me. Okay, I'll show you. Christ died for you. And you say, well, that happened in the past. And I say, yeah, but now you can consider it in the present. Christ's death on the cross is an ongoing 
every day, moment by moment, demonstration of the kind of love that God has. The kind of love that God, that God has that also demonstrates that our justification is not something temporary. He doesn't just change on a whim. That's the beauty of what Paul's doing here. He's drawing a contrast between even the most noble of human love and the kind of love that God has that is so far above even the most noble human love that you can count on it. The first begins with a contrast. It's a conjunction, but in contrast to the very best of human love is God's love. And again, God demonstrates it present tense. And none of these words in this sentence are superfluous. There's, he demonstrates his own love, the kind of love that he has. God demonstrates, present tense, his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The, dem- the word for demonstration here means to cause something to be known by action. And I would dare say if we took a poll, a private poll, of all the wives or even girlfriends in the audience tonight, and I would say, uh, do you prefer when your husband tells you that he loves you, or would you prefer not only that he tells you he loves you, but demonstrates he loves you? If I was to take this to an extreme and I was to say, if, if a husband was to come home and tell his wife, I love you, and then when dinner didn't come out the way that he had it planned, takes and smacks her right across the jaw, then picks her up and says, oh, honey, I love you. How many would truly believe that he loved her? Well, maybe she's naive and and forgives him, as she should before God, and says, well, he, he just was having a bad day. But then the next day he comes in and he's had another bad day at work. And maybe the house is not as clean as what he wanted it to be. So he says, I love you, and smack, punches her and and brutalizes her again. Sooner or later, any rational, reasonable person is going to get the idea that maybe what he's saying is not consistent with what really is what's really in his soul. Human beings appreciate demonstrations of love. Now, let me also give you a clue, guys. They also appreciate it when you tell them that you love them. Don't do the, the old classic thing of the guy that says, I, I told her I loved her when I married her. If I change my mind, I'll let her know at some point down the road. <laughs> That's not what I'm arguing. You, know, you do need to tell them as well. People need to be reminded. Okay. But love also needs to be demonstrated. I'm not talking about just bringing a, a flower in to make up for the fact that you've brutalized. And sometimes we can brutalize with fists. We brutalize with words. We brutalize with insensitivity. We brutalize with neglect. There are a lot of ways to show you don't love someone. There are a lot of ways to show that you do as well. So this particular Greek word means to cause something to be known by action. You see, it's one thing for God to say, I love you. It's another thing for him to demonstrate the fact that he loves you. You remember the, the card that was sold in Christian bookstores for, for so long? I don't know if it's still available or not. The, it goes essentially like this. A man comes up to God and says, or to Christ and says, how much do you love me? Christ stretches out his arms and says, this much. 
I don't really ordinarily go with Hallmark card theology, but that makes sense. That's how much he loves you. He's already demonstrated it in the past. And it was such an incredible event that it becomes now an ongoing demonstration. Don't miss the present tense of that verb. It's extremely important in our understanding of what happens. So God sent his son to die for us in this incredible demonstration while we were sinners. Again, Paul is making the point that he's made earlier in the passage. Everyone needs justification. The immoralist needs justification. The moralist needed justification. And the Jew needed justification. All were sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all were born with a problem. None of us has any right to stand on a high horse and say, I was a little bit more righteous than the next person. God didn't have to do quite so much to save me as he did someone else. Oh, boy. If we ever let those thoughts cross through our mind, we, we have a long way to go before we understand grace. I was at a, an event a couple of nights ago uh, where there was a musician playing a, a tune, and uh, the, the host of the event asked the, it's an accordion player, said, hey, how about playing Amazing Grace? And I knew he was an unbeliever because he, he began to kind of play through it. But he said, listen, I don't know the words to the song. What he was telling us was he was not going to sing the song. He, he was going to refuse to sing that. And then when he was uh, finished, uh, I said, you know, actually, if you don't know the words of that song, I'd like to teach them to you sometime because grace is an incredible thing. And he made a joke. He says, well, I, you know, I, I heard a woman sing that once. She was a beautiful, beautiful woman. And the line that stuck with me was, uh, that saved a wretch like me. And how someone could call that woman a wretch, I'll never know. And I said, well, she was. I don't care how good looking she was. She was still a wretch. And so was I. And so are you. We were still sinners. We all had a need. You know, that's kind of nice. You know, there's one, that's one aspect of equality that's kind of nice. We all started off in the same boat. So there ought to be no pride or arrogance in Christianity anywhere. The love demonstrated on the cross in the past at a point in history becomes a perpetual reminder of God's abiding love for us now. Should you ever doubt the fact that God loves you, look back to what he's already done for you. Now, let me close it this way. There is a unity, there's a connection then between the love that God demonstrated in the past and is a continual reminder. This is back to an objective love now. It's something that we can rationally observe. There's a connection between that objective demonstration of love and what Paul talked about back in verse 5, this subjective outpouring of God's love into our hearts. So now we've got it both ways. You know how your mom said you can't have it both ways? Yes, you can, at least in this part. You can have it the objective way, and you can have it the subjective way, and then when you put them together, there's a beauty to that that cannot be expressed in words. The love of God subjectively being poured out upon in our, heart, in our hearts, which the Holy Spirit allows us to feel, and the love of God, which has been objectively demonstrated in the past and continues with an objective demonstration even now to the, to, into the future. Objective and subjective put together in one concept. So we have these two witnesses, the objective witness of the cross and the subjective witness, the feeling of love that God the Holy Spirit pours out 
within our hearts. Heavenly Father, we can can simply bow our knee and say thank you. We're, we're in total humility about it. We, we know this is not the way that we would have acted. Even on our best day, we didn't act any, in a way any, we wouldn't act in a way that's anywhere close to what you did with your son. Father, may we never doubt the fact that you love us. And Father, may we take comfort, and to use Paul's word, may we take hope confident expectation of the fact that our justification can't be lost because you expressed your love toward us while we were enemies, certainly now that we're your children, you won't withdraw that love. So, Father, we just uh, bow our heads and say thank you for it. Uh, I pray now that as we go our way that you would dismiss us with the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.